0: Good morning, welcome, and I hope you're warm. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come now and speak to us through your word, and Lord, as you speak, give us ears to hear what you're saying to us, and give us grace to respond to your call this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I feel like we're still getting to know each other. Um, So I'll just give you a quick tidbit about me is I like hot beverages. This is tea. I drink a lot of coffee, which means I have too many coffee mugs. I'm always trying to clear coffee mugs out of my life. There's too many to keep organized. But I also always have my eye on a new mug that I want to get. And so one of the many coffee mugs that I want to add to my collection features a meme on it. And the meme has this illustration of the biblical scene of David and Goliath. You probably are familiar with the story. And so in the scene above Goliath, it simply says Goliath. And above David is written, not you. (laughs) It's clever, right? So I love the meme because it says a whole lot of stuff with, you know, a whole three words. You know, a a meme is worth a thousand words, maybe, is the new way to say that. And what it's doing is it cuts against this kind of whole school of reading the Bible that you might have run into, which I would say is, at best, reckless, and at worst, dangerous. And it's this way of reading scripture where either we kind of become the main heroes in the biblical story, or the biblical characters get reduced from just that, characters, people, into kind of an object moral lesson. So, you know, the whole kind of like the story of David and Goliath. Oh, well, what's the Goliath in your life that you can now slay with God on your side? That way of reading the Bible, in my experience, doesn't get you very far. And what makes this whole way of kind of seeing Scripture so troubling to me is that it reduces this book, the Scriptures, which are all about story and narrative and characters and people and all of their humanness, this story about God redeeming all things, God's work in the world, it takes all of that and reduces it to what really becomes a book of cheap moral platitudes, which I don't need any more of in my life, and I'm sure you don't either. And at the same time, while you or I, we're not characters in the books of Scripture, it is true that our lives intersect with the lives of those characters, and that our stories intersect with their stories. And that's exactly what's happening in our reading this morning from Mark's Gospel, where we find two callings happening at the same time. The first being a specific calling of these four disciples, these four followers of Jesus, and then a much bigger and broader calling that speaks to us today. So I want to consider both of these callings in this passage this morning. But before diving in, I always think it's helpful to kind of take a step back and to think about the broader context of where we're reading, and to look at the broader context of Mark's gospel as a whole. So the first thing to note about Mark's gospel is that it's short. It's really short. It's the shortest of all the gospels. It's 16 chapters in total. And Mark isn't just short, you know, in the word count. It's not short just in length, but it's characterized by a certain brevity in the way that Mark writes. So he's kind of the hemming way of the gospel writers. He's just short and to the point. And Mark has been described by scholars as being a gospel in three acts. So the first act of Mark's gospel takes place in Galilee, where Jesus' ministry kind of starts. The third act, the final act, takes place down in Jerusalem, where Jesus dies and rises again. And then act two is basically the journey between the two places— And this three-act play is all kicked off by a prologue that kind of sets the whole thing up that happens out in the wilderness. And so of these three acts in Mark, this final act at the end, the act where Jesus dies and rises again, is the one that really kind of looms the largest over the whole gospel. You kind of have to keep it in mind as you read, because Mark is trying to tell us that the crucified Jesus is the fullest expression of who Jesus is. Really is, And this theme is so central that I had a professor in seminary that liked to say that the gospel of Mark, you can almost think of the whole thing as a rush to the cross. Mark uses these words like immediately, and immediately this, and immediately that, all leading up to this full revelation of who Jesus is. And because of this, the cross kind of looms over every page of Mark. It should always be in our minds when we hear any part of the story and the account that he's laying out. And so I know that this is a sermon and not a seminary class, but I do think that having some of this context maybe helps us better hear what's going on in the passage we've read from the first chapter of Mark this morning. So to get an idea of how quickly Mark kind of moves us through the story of Jesus, our passage today comes 14 verses into the book. And in these 14 verses, the four, that's what makes up Mark's prologue, and it's worth considering just for a minute. So, Mark starts the gospel speaking to us in his own narrator voice. He tells us what the book is about. And he says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's no mystery here, is there? It's to the point. In the first sentence, Mark tells us what we should be looking for in what we read. That this person, Jesus, is God's Son. And that whatever we're going to learn about Jesus, what he came to do, who he is, that it is good news. So in verses 2 and 3, we get right into the ministry of John the Baptist. Mark quotes Isaiah, Behold, I send a messenger before you to prepare your way. And here Mark sets the stage for the prologue in the wilderness. John the Baptist's ministry is a whole four verses. And then in three verses, Mark tells us of Jesus' baptism. And then he manages to fit the whole account of Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness into two verses. And just to get a feel for how Mark writes, listen, The Spirit is immediately, Mark's favorite word, drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And the, he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So unlike Matthew's account, where there are just pretty much no details in dialogue here in Mark. And remarkably, too, in all of this prologue, Jesus has yet to speak a single word. We've heard details, we've heard accounts of things happening, but we have not heard Jesus speak. Jesus first speaks in Mark's gospel in our gospel passage today. And there we read that Jesus comes into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news or gospel. So these first words out of Jesus' mouth, we can think of them almost as if it's kind of the inaugural address of Jesus' ministry. They're setting the stage for all that Jesus is about to say and do between this point and the very end of the book. And it even builds on that opening sentence that Mark told us, that we know that Jesus is the Son of God and that somehow that is good news to us. But Jesus fills this picture out further, that the good news is about this reality that the kingdom of God has come close to us. It's come near to us. And because the kingdom has come near to us, there's something that we are to do in response to it, that we are to repent, that we are to turn around, and that we are to believe this good news. So with this kind of idea about what Jesus' purpose and ministry is in our minds, we find Jesus walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he sees Simon and Andrew, Simon Peter, who we'll know him as to be later. They're casting their nets into the sea. And Jesus just calls out to them, come, follow me, and I will make y'all. It is a y'all. We really need the southern translation because second person plurals are important. I will make y'all to become fishers of people, of humans. And Mark says that they immediately left their nets and followed him. And then going a bit further, Jesus sees James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They're in their boat, and they're fixing their nets. And Mark tells us that immediately Jesus calls them, and they leave their father Zebedee in the boat with the servants and follow him. This is the first calling that I want us to sit with for a bit and turn our attention to. Because you can just hear it kind of as an account of things that happen, but if you stop and you think, It's really remarkable what's going on here. The calling story of both of these sets of brothers. If you think, they're just going about the mundane, everyday work that they woke up and did every day. Their life was probably a bit like Groundhog Day. Every day, the same thing. Go to the sea, cast nets into the sea, catch fish, fix the nets, fix the boat, deal with servants, right? All this stuff over and over and over again on repeat. But then Jesus... Just walks by and calls them. And in both cases, they just stop. They drop everything, and they just walk away and follow him. No questions, no qualifications. And Mark tells us that James and John even walk away from their own father at their family business. They just walk out, leaving him in the boat with their employees. The suddenness of the response, if you think about it, it kind of begs the question, what was it about Jesus that drew these four men to do this and to follow him? So Mark, in his really short and to the point style, he doesn't really give us any help in answering the question, does he? And this has led scholars to fill in the blanks with a whole bunch of speculation about why. So was it maybe they saw Jesus before and knew him? Mark didn't tell us that, did he? Maybe these men who were working a common trade knew that Jesus was a teacher, a rabbi, and they jumped at the chance to actually follow him into some kind of religious calling that they thought they were going to get. And neither of these could very well be true. But Mark didn't think those details were important for us to know. What Mark wants us to know and to hear is that Jesus called And they answered. Jesus immediately called, and they immediately answered. That's it. So, these details are the only ones we need to know. And in giving us those details, Mark actually gives us something which I think is pretty amazing. He gives us some space to read between the lines of Scripture, to imagine, to envision, even to speculate a little bit. So, did they see something in the way that Jesus spoke to them? Did Jesus' words pull on their hearts in a certain way that led them to this pretty radical behavior? Or was it something they saw about Jesus? Was it something in his appearance? Was it something in his demeanor? Was it something that makes them know that he was worth leaving everything and following? Or was it just a feeling? You know, the kind of gut feeling. This guy says what he means, and I I'm going to follow him. That what he's offering me is so much better than what is here in front of me. That's even worth dropping my family, my business, everything I've known. What do you think it was? What do you think it was? Sit with it for a minute. If you were in the disciples' shoes, what kind of thing would you have to perceive or hear from Jesus in order to do what they did? To walk away from life as you knew it to walk away from your job and your work, to walk away from your family business, in the case of James and John, leaving your own father in the middle of the workday? What would it be for you? Reading scripture like this isn't, you know, where we build doctrine or systematic theology or those kind of things. But reading scripture like this allows us to encounter the story of Scripture in the biblical text, in a new way. It makes Scripture not just some story that exists out there, kind of in the ether or in the clouds, but actually let Scripture be what it is, which is a living, breathing story that involves real humans just like you and me. Engaging Scripture like this brings us to the intersection between our own stories and the story, the big story, So that even though Mark's account on the face of it isn't about you, and it's not about me, it also, at the very same time, is completely about you and me. The intersection of our stories and the story of Jesus this morning more so raises questions for us to contemplate rather than giving us answers or simple moral examples to follow. It gives us these kind of questions. Questions like, What about Jesus led you to first follow him? What was Jesus' first call to you? Or if you're not sure about Jesus or wondering about who this Jesus guy is, what about Jesus sparked your curiosity? What made you think he was even worth taking a look at? One of the first questions that reading this passage always brings up to me, no matter how many times I read it, is whether or not I would have responded like Simon and Andrew and James and John. And it'd be really great to stand up here and be like, I'd definitely do what they did, but that wouldn't be true because I don't know what I would do. I haven't been able to come up with an answer to the question. But that question led me to another place in thinking about this passage, which is, why was it even that Jesus called these four men to follow him? So was it because of their religious acumen or is it because of their understanding of the scriptures? Well, no, they weren't Bible scholars or teachers. They were tradesmen, common fishermen. Was it because they were particularly great guys and kind of had you know the moral makeup to follow Jesus? Probably not. Was it because they were really perceptive and open to Jesus and were going to understand everything he taught in parables and all the mystery, they were just gonna get it and understand his purpose in the world? No way. Because all you have to do is Keep reading mark 's Gospel to see how this pans out and to see what happens with Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John, and really all the disciples all right so Simon Peter has uh, quite a few pretty famous missteps along the way, so in Mark eight, just a few chapters later, Peter's the first one to confess Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and Jesus then explains what his mission is the Messiah going to be, which is to die, and to rise again. And Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Rebukes him. He tells Jesus off, leading to Jesus calling Peter in a slightly different way than we read this morning. Jesus calls Peter Satan, and he tells him to get behind him, to put his mind on the things of God, not on the things of man. And there's also the well-documented time where Peter tells Jesus at the Last Supper that he'll never deny him, only to deny him three times the very same night. In Mark 10, we find Jesus again exp- trying to explain to his disciples how his ministry is going to culminate, that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be handed over to religious authorities who will condemn him, deliver him up to the Gentiles, who will then mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him, but that after three days he will rise. And what Jesus is trying to do in Mark 10 is show the disciples How the kingdom of God works, that its king is not going to win victory in the way that they think, by force, but instead in weakness by laying down his own life. And so how did James and John respond? Well, they immediately asked Jesus to grant them places of power, to sit at Jesus's right and his left in glory, thinking that they're going to be on thrones next to Jesus's big throne that they're going to be in the room where it happens, to quote Hamilton. They immediately show that they have zero understanding of all the things that Jesus has been trying to tell them over and over about who he is and about how his kingdom works. And Jesus corrects them, telling them that though they will share the baptism and the cup of suffering that Jesus will have to partake of, to sit at his right and his left is not for them, but for whom God has prepared. It's Jesus referencing his crucifixion and the thieves who will be at his right and his left. Because on the cross, that is Jesus in his fullest glory and power. The truth is that these four disciples were every bit as capable of getting it completely right, like we read today, but also completely wrong. Meaning that Jesus chose them not because of their own merit, because they were great, but Jesus chose them because of his own merit. Jesus just simply chose them. And this is where this first calling in our passage begins to give way to the second calling in our passage, which is our own calling. So as much as we can gain from imagining ourselves here in the disciples' shoes or thinking self-reflectively about how we might have responded to Jesus if we were in their place, the fundamental calling that the disciples were responding to isn't just what Jesus said to them, but it's actually the same call that Jesus makes to us from the very beginning of our passage. It's the call to repent and to believe in the good news. The call that in Jesus, God has come nearer to us and that we are now invited to return and to turn back to him. So, it can be easy, especially in reading passages like ours today, to take the disciples and place them kind of on this pedestal where we think they're some spiritual superheroes who are somehow immune from the things that make following Jesus hard. But that's not the biblical witness. It's not even close. The biblical witness is that following Jesus is really hard. And sometimes it's really confusing. And sometimes people who follow Jesus manage to get it really, really wrong. Even go so far as to rebuke Jesus to his face and to deny him. The biblical witness is that those who follow Jesus aren't spiritual superheroes. They're actually just humans. Humans who bear both the dignity and the glory of being made after God's own image, but who also bear the deep wounding and scars of sin meaning that the call to follow Jesus isn't one that we answer because in our own wisdom, we've put all the facts together, we've done all the research, and we figured out who Jesus really is, but actually it's a call that we answer because we know our deep need, our desperate need for him. That Jesus calls us not because of something in us, be it our intelligence or our performance or our faithfulness, but simply because of his own mercy. So in our Old Testament reading this morning from Jeremiah, we find Israel in a bad spot. So, you know, prophets don't usually show up when things are going great. Things have to be going pretty poorly for a prophet to come on the scene. And so here we have God telling Israel through Jeremiah that they have abandoned him like an unfaithful spouse. That they've walked away from God and that they have forgotten him. And yet in verse 22, we find God saying, a really remarkable thing to his people who have been treacherous and abandoned him. God says, Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. So, despite Israel's foolishness and their faithlessness, despite the fact they've forgotten Yahweh, their God, he calls them back. He calls them to turn around, to repent. And it's in this call to return that God offers them a word of promise. That I will heal your faithlessness. That I will make whole whatever it is that caused you to leave and to turn away from me. And it's this interplay between human faithlessness and God's promise to heal, which is what's really at the heart of Jesus' call to follow him and to repent and to believe in the good news. So in the very first of the 95 theses, which is the document that kicked off what we now call the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther wrote, I think it's a pretty stellar line that stuck with me. He wrote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, meaning that it's never something we graduate out of. That turning to God isn't something you do when you first respond to Jesus and then never need to do it again. No, Jesus' call to us is that same call, to repent. That no matter where we find ourselves in life, whether we're in a good moment or we're in a bad moment, whether we are in the midst of joy or in the midst of deep and profound pain, in the middle of what feels like a total mess, whether we made that mess or not, the call is the same. In all life, Jesus is calling to us return to me, return to me and I will heal your blank. I will heal your unfaithfulness. I will heal your shame. I will heal your anger. I will heal your wounds. I will heal your bitterness. I'll heal your hardness of heart. I'll heal your grief. I'll heal your unbelief. What is that blank for you? This morning. What is it? This is what following Jesus looks like. This constant returning. Being called and coming back. Us wandering but hearing the voice of our shepherd. And responding to it. And this is actually something in some sense that we reenact in our liturgy and in our life together in this place every single week. You think about it. We come here. We come and we confess before God. We bring before God all that we have, what we need healing for, and then we receive. We receive Jesus as he meets us here through the scriptures. Jesus speaks his very own word of mercy and pardon over us in response to our faithlessness. And most amazingly, Jesus invites us to his very own table to feast with him. This table right here Jesus invites us to come and to receive his real physical presence with us in this tangible way we can grab and we can taste. So every week in this place, as mundane as it may seem sometimes, as much as we're here in the rush of trying to get our family together, fighting the cold, crossing old Buncombe Road, and all those mundane things, yet the kingdom of God comes near to us here in this place. In the words of scripture, at the table every single week we come and we repent and we believe again the good news of the gospel as it's proclaimed to us and we hear it and as it's proclaimed to us in what we eat and in what we drink into our very bodies. So friends, this morning, listen. Jesus is speaking to you today. He's speaking to you and he's calling you yet again to turn to him, to return to him, and to follow. He's calling you to bring whatever it is you need to bring to be healed and to be restored. But the question for each of us this morning is the same, which is will you say yes to this invitation he holds out to you and to me? Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you that your call to us is never ceasing. Lord, that in all of life, wherever we find ourselves, your arms remain open to us. And that, Lord, you call us to turn and to return to you. That you promise healing for our souls and you promise us rest. So, Father, give us grace this day to respond to Jesus' calling. Let's bring before him whatever we need him to take. And, Lord, pray that you would set us free to serve you and to love you. And to be your people in this world, which you've called us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.